Chapter 9 The Sacrament of Thanksgiving Give thanks for all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 1. In the liturgic textbooks, the prayer of thanksgiving, to which the Eucharistic celebration leads as its summit and fulfillment, is usually considered according to its parts, which have long been designated by Latin or Greek titles, prefatio, sanctus, anamnesis, etc. This division, moreover, does correspond to the structure and order of the Eucharistic prayer, and could be useful for its comprehension precisely as the fulfillment of the liturgy. One must suppose that it did arise in liturgical studies with this aim in mind. In fact, however, it has led, strange as it may seem, literally to the opposite result. In the consciousness of liturgists and theologians, and after them the faithful themselves, this phenomenon indeed divided the Eucharistic prayer, shattered it, as it were, into several prayers which, although following one after another, were no longer perceived as a whole, as one single prayer. Moreover, if all of these parts, their historical genesis, these similarities and distinctions between them in the many Eucharistic texts that have come down to us from antiquity, remain a subject of study for liturgists, then theologians have long ago concentrated their entire interest on the part they have identified with the consecratory formula, i.e., the moment and the mode of the transformation of the Eucharistic gifts. The fragmentation of the Eucharistic prayer led, of course, to the predominant practice of the priest reading it secretly, in other words, to himself. I intend to speak of the origins of this practice, which was absolutely unknown to the early church, in a special excursus. Note, Father Schmemann was unable to write this excursus before his death. For now, I will say only that already for several centuries now, the laity, the people of God whom the Apostle Peter called, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, 1 Peter 2.9, have simply not heard, and thus do not know this veritable prayer of prayers through which the mystery is completed, and the essence and calling of the church herself are fulfilled. All the faithful here are individual exclamations and fragmented phrases, whose interconnection, and sometimes even simple meaning, remain unintelligible, as in singing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying. If we add to this the fact that in many Orthodox churches these prayers being secret, or, moreover, read behind closed royal doors, and sometimes even behind a drawn altar curtain, then it would be no exaggeration to say that the prayer of thanksgiving has, for all practical purposes, been dropped from the church service. I repeat, the laymen simply do not know it. Theologians are not interested in it. The priest, who is forced to glance over it while the choir is singing, and frequently even giving a concert, is hardly capable of perceiving it in its fullness, unity, and integrity. And finally, in the service books themselves, it has long been printed in broken fragments, separated by ellipses that have no reason at all for being where they are, and likewise with various insertions that crept into it from purely accidental sources. Considering this situation, in which I honestly cannot but see a deep decadence, we need to begin any discussion of the Eucharistic prayer with the revelation of its unity. In other words, how all of these parts into which it was dismembered by both liturgical studies and, alas, liturgical practice, are mutually joined in an indivisible whole. For I repeat, only in this whole is its meaning and power revealed as precisely the act of completing the sacrament, as the fulfillment of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Let us note right away that the multiplicity of Eucharistic prayers that have come down to us in no way contradict this unity. In antiquity, almost every ecclesiastical province had its own anaphora, in other words, its own form and text of the prayer of thanksgiving. The early church, being free from the obsession with uniformity that later developed, in no way identified such uniformity with unity. Even today, there exist in the Orthodox Church two liturgies, of St. John Chrysostom and of St. Basil the Great, and the chief difference between them lies in the text of the prayer of thanksgiving. Thus, when we speak of the unity of this prayer, 
We do not mean an outward, linguistic unity, which never existed in the church, but of something immeasurably deeper. We are speaking of the unity of the faith and experience of the church, from which all these prayers were born. For, whatever the semantic differences between them, they all manifest and incarnate one and the same integral experience, one and the same knowledge, and one and the same witness. It is an experience of which one can say, for identical reasons, that all human words fail to suffice for its definition, and that, for those who have it, it lives, grows, and bears fruit in the briefest, fewest, and simplest words. 2. What then gives this chief, truly consummate prayer of the liturgy its unity, transforms it into that whole, in and through which we affirm that this sacrament of sacraments is accomplished? The Church has answered this first and fundamental question literally from the first day of her existence by naming not only this prayer itself, but also the entire liturgy with one word. This word is Eucharist, thanksgiving. Thus, with the word Eucharist, the Church has named and still calls the offering of the gifts, the prayer, their consecration and the partaking of them by the faithful. In communing of the holy mysteries, we pray that they may be for us thanksgiving, health, and happiness. Hence it follows that both the call of the celebrant, Let us give thanks unto the Lord, and the response of the gathering, It is meet and right, obviously relate not just to a single introductory section of the Eucharistic prayer, the prefacio in the language of liturgists, but are essentially the beginning the foundation and the key to its entire contents, outside of which the most holy mystery of the Eucharist remains hidden from us. The entire oblation, anaphora, which this part of the liturgy has long ago named, is from the beginning to end a thanksgiving. However, in order to understand today, after centuries of forgetting, the meaning of this affirmation, to understand what for the early church was joyfully self-evident, in no need of explanation, we must first make our way through the piles of interpretations in which this self-evidency becomes lost, and only then go on to the original Christian meaning and experience of thanksgiving. It would be better to simply say, thanksgiving is the experience of paradise. But the word paradise has also become weakened and stale in contemporary Christian consciousness. The learned interpreters of Christianity shun it as naive and primitive, and needs to be, in a way, exhumed. Perhaps, however, it has become weakened because it came to be torn away from its churchly ring, from that experience of paradise in the gift and anticipation of which consists the first and deepest meaning of church worship. Standing in the temple of thy glory, we think we are in heaven. And thus, on the day of the nativity of Christ, when we celebrate the advent of God into the world, the church sings, and the cherubim withdrawn from the tree of life, and I partake of the delights of paradise. Vespers, first stichera on Lord, I call. Thus, from the radiant depths of the paschal night, we address the risen Christ with the exultant affirmation, You have opened to us the gates of paradise. Matins Canon, Ode 6.1 And again we come to know that paradise is the primordial state of man and all creation, our state before the fall, before our banishment from paradise, and our state upon our salvation by Christ, the eternal life which was promised by God, and in Christ is already granted, already opened to man. Paradise is, in other words, the beginning and the end, to which is oriented and through which is defined and determined the entire life of man, and in him of all creation. It is in relation to it that we comprehend the divine source of our life and of our fall from God, our enslavement to sin and death, our salvation by Christ, and our eternal destiny. We were created in paradise and for paradise. We were exiled from paradise, and Christ leads us again into paradise. If with our spiritual vision and with our spiritual ear we contemplate and hearken to the church's experience of paradise, to the harmonious witness of the word of God and the worship and sanctity that never runs low in the church, then the essence of this experience, the content of eternal life, of eternal joy, of eternal bliss for which we were created, is revealed to us as the triunity of knowledge, 
freedom, and thanksgiving. It is not, I emphasize, knowledge and freedom, and then, in addition, thanksgiving as something separate from them, but knowledge and freedom themselves fulfill in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving as the fullness of knowledge and freedom, and thus communion, and thus possession. 3. This is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God. John 17.3 All Christianity lies in these words of Christ. Man was created for knowledge of God, and in the knowledge of God is his true and thus eternal life. But this knowledge is not the knowledge through which our reason puffs itself up, convinced that it can know everything, including God, and all the while remaining ignorant of the fact that the entire depth and irretrievability of our fall lies precisely in the darkening of our mind and in the decay of genuine knowledge. Thus the knowledge of God that Christ speaks of as eternal life, as paradise, is not the rational knowledge about God that, however formally and objectively correct, remains nevertheless within the limits and a part of that knowledge that is fallen and shattered, made feeble by sin, deprived of access to the essence of what is known, and thus ceasing to be encounter, communion, unity. In his alienation from God, in his literally senseless choice of life not in God, but in itself and by itself, Adam did not cease to know about God, which means to believe through that faith about which it is said that even the demons believe and tremble. But he ceased to know God, and his life ceased to be that meeting with God, that communion with him, and in him with all of God's creation, all of which the book of Genesis depicts as the essence of paradise. And it is only for this meeting with the living God, the God as the life of life, that the soul thirsts and cannot but thirst. For in its deepest depths, it itself is this thirst. My soul thirsts for the living God, says the psalmist. Thanksgiving is the sign, or better still, the presence, joy, fullness of knowledge of God. In other words, knowledge as meeting, knowledge as communion, knowledge as unity. Just as it is impossible to know God and not give Him thanks, so it is impossible to give Him thanks without knowing Him. Knowing God transforms our life into thanksgiving, and thanksgiving transforms eternity into life everlasting. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 103.1 If the entire life of the church is above all one continuous burst of praise, blessing, and thanksgiving, if this thanksgiving is raised up both out of joy and out of sorrow, out of the depths of both happiness and misfortune, out of both life and death, if the most bitter graveside lamentation is transformed by it into a song of praise, Alleluia, then it is because the church is the meeting with God, which has been accomplished in Christ. It is his Christ's knowledge of God that has been granted to us as the gift of pure thanksgiving and heavenly praise. Christ has opened to us the gates of paradise. For after all had been accomplished, when forgiveness of sins and victory over death had shone forth, when the cherubim withdrew from the tree of life, then there remained only praise, only thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, which before it became thanksgiving for something, for all things of which we know and of which we know not, whether manifest or unseen, is granted to us as precisely a pure thanksgiving, as the blessed heavenly fullness of the soul, beholding the ineffable goodness beauty of the face of God, and in this knowledge, finding the total joy of that little child of the Gospels, about whom Christ said that if he does not arise in us, we cannot enter into the paradise of the kingdom of God. 4. It is through this pure thanksgiving, and precisely because it is true knowledge, the fullness of the soul that has come to know God, that the internal knowledge of the world which had disintegrated in the sinful fall of man from God and become nothing more than only knowledge about the world, is restored. As Kant has demonstrated once and for all, this objective, external knowledge is hopelessly closed off from access to things in themselves, to the very essence of the world and life, and thus to genuine possession of them. And yet man was created for this possession. He was called to it, when in paradise God appointed him king of creation, 
invested him with authority to give names to every living creature, in other words, to know them from within, in their deepest essence. And thus the knowledge that is restored by this thanksgiving is not knowledge about the world, but of the world. For this thanksgiving is knowledge of God, and by the same token apprehension of the world as God's world. It is knowing not only that everything in the world has its cause in God, which, in the end, knowledge about the world is also capable of, but also that everything in the world and the world itself is a gift of God's love, a revelation by God of his very self summoning us in everything to know God through everything to be in communion with him, to possess everything as life in him. As the world was created by the word of God by blessing, in the deepest ontological significance of this expression, so is it saved and restored by thanksgiving and blessing, granted to us in the temple of Christ. Through them we recognize and comprehend the world as an icon, as communion, as sanctification. Through them we transform it into what it was created for and granted to us by God. And when he had given thanks and blessed it and hallowed it, each time we pronounce these words of the prayer of thanksgiving, we accomplish the remembrance of Christ who took bread. And this means matter, the world, creation, in his holy, pure, and blameless hands. And again we witness to the world as a new creation, recreated as the paradise of delight, in which everything created by God is called to become our partaking of the divine love of the divine life. 5. Finally, thanksgiving, being the fullness of knowledge, is also the fulfillment of freedom, that genuine freedom of which Christ said, You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8.32 This is the freedom that man lost in his fall from God, in his banishment from paradise. Just as the knowledge that man struts around with, considering it all powerful, is not genuine knowledge, so the freedom that he continually bewails is not genuine freedom, but a certain mysterious reflection of it that cannot be explained with scientific precision, an unexplainable thirst in the human heart. It is astonishing how easily Christians themselves forget this, and how thoughtlessly, as something that goes without saying, they adopt the cheap liberation rhetoric that is smothering contemporary civilization. It is astonishing because Christians should know better than others that indeed in this world, enslaved by sin and death, no one can ever define the essence of this freedom, which has become an idol. No one can describe that kingdom of freedom, the struggle for the achievement of which supposedly defines human history. And this is because here again we know about freedom, but we do not know freedom. Indeed, we know something about it only relatively, only by comparison. Of course, those who lived under an orthodox government were freer than those living under a totalitarian government. For someone sitting in jail, freedom begins beyond the walls of his cell. For someone living in freedom, it begins with the overcoming of whatever unfreedom comes next, and so on ad infinitum. However, no matter how many layers of unfreedom we remove, each time we remove one, we inevitably find beneath it another, which turns out to be not less but more impenetrable. It would seem that we would finally be forced to see the illusoriness of the daydreams that torment us. The ordinary man, whose attention is entirely focused on the next unfreedom, could easily fail to know this illusoriness. The crowds storming the next Bastille would not know it, and it would not be known to the Ortega y Gassat, man of the masses, whose liberators changed every hue and cry into hurrah from the throat of the patriot, down with the throats of the renegade, to use the words of one Russian poet. But those few who, in their Promethean quest for freedom, freedom not only from someone and something, but absolute freedom in itself, smash themselves on the blank walls to which this search inevitably leads in this world, according to its elements and logic, have come to know it and witness to it by their terrible fate. In Dostoevsky's The Possessed, Kirillov commits suicide, and in real life, Nietzsche, sinking into insanity, took his own life while hearing the sinister laughter of the idiot, Arthur Rimbaud. I'm staring at the walls, whispered the dying Valerie, and the dark, 
Kafkaesque flame of absurdity and despair all the more clearly burst through the cracks of a world supposedly constructed on freedom and reason and promising freedom. But it is time we acknowledged that Christians themselves bear a large share of the responsibility for this tragedy of freedom, that it is not accidental that the roots of this tragedy stretch out into that world and that culture that not very long ago at all called itself Christian. On the one hand, the unheard-of, impossible good news of freedom, the call, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand fast therefore, Galatians 5.1, came into the world with, and only with, Christianity. It is precisely Christianity, and only it, which has forever spoiled human consciousness with this unquenchable thirst. But, on the other hand, who, if not Christians themselves, have substituted, or one can even say, handed down this good news while reducing it, for the world, for those outside, to facile, scientific and objective knowledge about God, to a knowledge from without that cannot define God other than in categories of power, authority, necessity, and law. Precisely from here stems the terrible pathos of theomachy, inherited to all ideologies that promise freedom to mankind. And here there is no misunderstanding, for if God is what knowledge about God self-assuredly affirms about him, then man is a slave, in spite of all the stipulations and elucidations suggested in smooth apologetics and theodicy. And then, for the sake of freedom, it is necessary that God not exist, and that he be killed. And through this murder of God, contemporary man, defying himself, advances to his lowest depths. Hence, neither this world, nor the knowledge about God constructed upon its logic and categories, has the power to define the essence of freedom at its heart, not only in its negative, but in its positive and absolute content. This is because freedom is not at all an essence, something existing and consequently definable in itself. God created us not for some kind of abstract freedom, but for himself, for our communion, having been brought out of non-being into life and life in abundance, which is only from him, in him, is him. Man seeks and thirsts only for this life. It is only this life that man calls by that most incomprehensible, for it corresponds to nothing in the nature of this world, and thus is always hardened, word, freedom. It is only toward it that he strives, even when he is blindly and mindlessly struggling with God. Thus we shall leave the dead to bury the dead. We shall leave this joyless quest for squaring a circle, which any attempt to pose and resolve the problem of freedom inevitably becomes. We shall leave it and attend to the thanksgiving that we just spoke of, in which is fulfilled the genuine knowledge of God, in which is accomplished our meeting with him, and not with ideas about him. The church lives in thanksgiving. It is the air she breathes. Let us listen and, to the measure of our acceptance of this thanksgiving, we shall grasp, and not only by reason alone, but with our entire being, that here and only here, only in this knowledge thanksgiving occurs our entrance into the soul true, for it is of God, freedom. It is the freedom that the Holy Spirit, the giver of life who blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, John 3.8, grants both as our breath, our royal nobility, and as power and perfection, fullness and beauty of life, or better still, life in abundance. The one born of God, knowing him, gives thanks, and in giving thanks he is free, and the power and miracle of thanksgiving, as freedom and liberation, lies in the fact that it makes the unequal equal. God and man, creature and creator, servant and master. And it is not the equality inspired in man by the devil, whose secret impulse is in envy, in hatred for everything that is above, holy and lofty, in plebeian repudiation of thanksgiving and worship, and therefore in striving to make everything equal at the lowest point. Rather, it makes equal in that it knows man's dependence on God, objectively, indisputable, and ontologically absolute, to be freedom. It knows this inwardly, through the knowledge of God, from the meeting with God, from which thanksgiving itself was freely born. 
And if the itch for equality is, out of ignorance, the itch of the slave, then thanksgiving and worship come out of knowledge and vision, out of meeting with the holy and exalted one, out of entry into the freedom of being sons of God. The church manifests and grants this freedom to us each time that we ascend to the very summit of the divine liturgy and hear the call directed to us and to all of God's creation, embracing everything in itself. Let us give thanks unto the Lord, and in the fullness of knowledge we answer, It is meet and right. 6. It is meet and right to hymn thee, to bless thee, to praise thee, to give thanks to thee, and to worship thee in every place of thy dominion. Here again this pure, free, blessed thanksgiving, restored and granted to man by Christ, is raised up over the world. It is his thanksgiving, his knowledge, his filial freedom, which has become and eternally becomes ours. Because it is of Christ and from above, this thanksgiving raises us up to paradise. As anticipation of it, as partaking while still on earth of the kingdom which is to come. And thus, each time it is raised up, the salvation of the world is complete. All is fulfilled. All is granted. Man again stands where God placed him, restored to his vocation, to offer God a reasonable service, to know God, to thank and to worship him in spirit and in truth and through this knowledge and thanksgiving to transform the world itself into communion in the life that was in the beginning with God, John 1-2, with God the Father, and was manifested to us. This life was with the Father. It is infinitely important for understanding not only the liturgy, but the very essence of the Christian faith to know and remember that the Eucharist is communion with the Father. The daring thou of the prayer of thanksgiving is directed to the Father, and the knowledge of God, in which, as we endeavor to show, the thanksgiving of the church fulfills itself, is knowledge of the Father. But we have become so accustomed to applying this word Father to God, that we no longer feel how completely unheard of this is, how impossible it is for human lips, for the mouth of a creature, to direct it toward the Creator. Therefore, we do not realize that this possibility with boldness and without condemnation to call God Father, to have access to the Father, Ephesians 2.18, is not only the greatest of all Christ's gift to us, but is the very essence of salvation, of ourselves and of the world, by Christ. No one has seen God, John 1.19. This is known to any genuine religious experience, which is always above all an experience of the holy, in the original, primordial meaning of this word, holy, as absolutely other, incomprehensible, unknowable, unfathomable, and ultimately even frightful. Religion was born, and is born simultaneously from attraction to the holy, from knowledge that the absolutely other is, and from incomprehension as to what it is. And thus there is nothing on earth more ambiguous and in its ambiguity tragic than religion. It is only our contemporary, fizzled-out, and sentimental religiosity that is convinced that religion is always something good, positive and useful, and that in essence people have always believed in the same good and condescending God, in a Father, who in fact was created according to the image and likeness of our own little goodness, easy morality, commonplace pity, cheap complacency, and shoddy magnanimity. We have forgotten how close to religion, in a certain sense, co-natural to it, are the dark abysses of fear, insanity, hatred, fanaticism, all the sinister superstition that early Christianity, seeing in it a devilish delusion, took such pains to expose. In other words, we have forgotten that religion, as much as it is from God, from the ineradicable thirst and seeking for him and man, can also be from the prince of this world, separating man from God and submerging him in the horrible darkness of ignorance. We have forgotten, finally, that the most horrible of all words that ever resounded on earth were spoken not to lukewarm agnostics, but to religious people. Your father is the devil. John 8.44 Only in relation to this darkness to the valley of the shadow of death in which this fallen world abides, 
is the light of knowledge that shines in Christ revealed to our spiritual consciousness as knowledge of the one true God, and knowledge of Him as Father. For the fatherhood of God, manifested to us by Christ, is not the natural anthropomorphic fatherhood, the knowledge of which, in relation to God, religion infers from below, and which God thus shares with various earthly fatherhoods. This fatherhood is possessed only by God, and manifested and granted only by the only begotten Son of God. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and any one to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Matthew 11.27 Christianity did not begin with an ecumenical, universal message of Father God common to all religions, in which the word Father, to cap it all off, is ambiguous, for God did not give birth to the world and man, but created them, and thus they are in no way an emanation from God. Christianity began with faith in the coming into the world, in the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God, and in our becoming sons, in Him and only in Him, of His Father. Christianity is the gift of a double revelation, the revelation by the Father of the Son, whom no one knows except the Father, and the revelation by the Son of the Father, whom no one knows except the Son, but in whose manifestation to us, in our being brought to Him, consists the matter of the salvation of man and the world accomplished by Christ. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Beloved, we are God's children now. 1 John 3, 1-2. Consequently, to believe in Christ means above all to believe Him, that He is the only begotten Son of God, and hence the manifestation in the world of knowledge of God, of love for the Father, of life through Him and in Him, and likewise the manifestation of the love of the Father with which He eternally loves the Son and has given all things to Him. It is to believe, further, that the Son grants His unique, only begotten Sonship to us, making us sons of God the Father. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. John 20.17 And finally, it is to believe and to know that in His beloved Son the Father, whom the world has not known, John 17.25, manifests and grants to us His fatherhood, he loves us with the same love with which He loves His Son. And because all knowledge of the Father, all love for Him, all unity with Him resides in the Sonship of the Son, because the Son and the Father are one, John 10.30, He who knows the Son knows the Father. He has access to Him and to eternal life. The Church lives through this filial knowledge of the Father, through access to Him in the Son, and she proclaims them as salvation and life eternal. And thus, the sacrament of the Eucharist, in which the Church fulfills herself as the new creation, as the body of Christ and as communion in the kingdom which is to come, is in its deepest depths the sacrament of the knowledge of the Father, of access, of assent to Him in His only begotten Son. The Apostle Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied, John 14.8. And now, in the Son of God, the Father is shown and manifested to us. He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. And not only seen, but has access to him, knows him as the Father. 7. Thou it was who brought us from non-existence into being. Since it is knowledge of the Father, Thanksgiving is, every time, apprehension of the world, apprehension of it as it was given to us by God, and discovery about our very selves, as having been called by God, out of darkness into His marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9, and as receiving His precious and very great promises that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 2.4. Only when we are presented to the Father, in Christ, the Son of God, do we become cognizant both of ourselves and of the world with the knowledge that was impossible in the darkness of this world, but is restored, returned to us through our Sonship of the Father. 
Actually, nowhere is the darkness of ignorance into which we were immersed with our fall from God more obvious than in man's staggering ignorance of himself, and this in spite of the insatiable interest with which, having lost God, man studies himself and endeavors in his sciences humanes to penetrate the mystery of man's being. We live in an era of unrestrained narcissism, universal turning into oneself. But, as strange and even terrible as this may seem, the more elemental is this interest, the more obvious it is that it is nourished by some dark desire to dehumanize man. Levi Strauss, one of the leaders of anthropological structuralism, declares himself convinced that the ultimate goal of the science of men is not the affirmation of man, but his dissolution. And, be it in different ways, Contemporary linguistics, psychology, and sociology all echo him. The entire archaeology of our thought, says Michael Foucault, another mental giant, demonstrates without difficulty that man is of recent invention, and it announces his end, possibly soon. The solution to the mystery of man is already turned into a negotiation not only of the mystery, but of man himself his dissolution into that monotonously gray and meaningless world that, in the words of the Nobel laureate Jacques Monod, is undividedly ruled by the frigid law of chance and necessity. The thanksgiving offered by the church each time answers and destroys precisely this not only contemporarily but age-old lie about the world and man. Each time it is a manifestation of man to himself, a manifestation of his essence, his place and calling in the light of the divine countenance, and therefore an act that renews and recreates man. In thanksgiving we recognize and confess above all the divine source and the divine calling of our life. The prayer of thanksgiving affirms that God brought us from non-existence into being, which means that he created us as partakers of being. In other words, not just something that comes from him, but something permeated by his presence, light, wisdom, love, by what orthodox theology, following St. Gregory Palamas, calls the divine energies, and which makes the world called to and capable of transfiguration into a new heaven and a new earth, and the ruler of creation, man, called to and capable of theosis, partaking of the divine nature. 8. And when we had fallen away, thou didst raise us up again. Only now, only from the heights of the knowledge of God, man and the world to which thanksgiving has brought us, can we hear these two expressions, this double revelation given to us at each Eucharist of the mystery of sin and salvation, in their full depth and power. Why only now? Because... For the anthropological maximalism inherent in Christianity, of which we are just speaking, the affirmation of the divine height of man, of his essence and calling, an ostensibly pious but in essence truly heretical anthropological minimalism, is always being substituted in the consciousness even of faithful and devout people. It is heretical because in its false humility, it constitutes nothing other than a deeply unchristian normalization of sin and evil. In point of fact, in our usual, everyday, lukewarm religiosity, do we not perceive sin as something precisely normal, which arises self-evidently out of the weakness and imperfection supposedly inherent to our nature, while perfection and holiness, conversely, we see as something supernatural? And every word... Every action of the Eucharist exposes precisely this normalization of sin, this lowering of man to the level of the weakest, and in his weakness most irresponsible, creature. This, speaking directly, defamation of God's creation. It exposes it in that it reveals sin as man's falling away, not only from God but also from himself, from his true nature, from the honor of the high calling to which God has summoned him. Even the very expression, when we had fallen away, presupposes and contains the experience of the heights from which the fall occurred. 
The fall is so horrible because it is not something naturally inherent to God's creation. It could never have been natural for one whom God has chosen for glory and honor when he placed him over his handiwork. Because the church knows these heights, because her whole life is the grace-filled experience of restoration, of return to these heights, of ascent to them, the church knows sin in its full depth and power. But this knowledge is radically different from those facile, rational, discursive explanations whose fatal insufficiency consists in the fact that they all, in one way or another, give sin a legal basis, making it, in philosophical terminology, a phenomenon bene fendatum. In such explanations, sin ceases to be precisely a fall. Considered in an objective, cause-and-effect relationship, it turns out to be legitimized, normal, and it is no longer sin itself but the overcoming of it that is perceived as something that exceeds the norm. But for the church, in her experience and in her faith, sin and evil are essentially above all a mystery, because evil does not and cannot have its own existence, for everything that exists is from God, and hence is very good." something that man could freely choose in preference to his own free essence as good. Evil, according to one of the church fathers, is unsown grass. But while it is not sown, not created by God, it is. It possesses a terrible destructive power, so that it can be said about the world itself that it lies in evil. 1 John 5.19 There is no explanation of this mystery in the Christian faith. Because in the categories of our fallen and cunning reason, explanation inevitably becomes justification, as one of the most false, but then perhaps one of the most popular of sayings affirms, to understand is to forgive. But it is not possible either to understand or justify sin. And the church, while not explaining it, convicts sin in the original, seminal meaning of the word, to convict. The church, and only the church, exposes sin as sin, evil as evil, to the full boundlessness of their inexplicability, impossibility, and thus terror, non-existence, irreparability. How then is this conviction accomplished? To this, in essence, singularly important question, fully aware that the learned interpreters of the problem of evil will hardly listen, we answer— Above all, first of all, the church convicts sin through her thanksgiving. Through it, she recognizes the vital essence of evil, the source of sin as unthankfulness, as man's falling away from the hymning, blessing, praising, giving thanks, and worshiping through which he lives, for man, and in him all creation knows God and his communion with him. Not giving thanks is the root of the driving force of that pride in which all teachers of the spiritual life, that art of arts, without exception, see the sin that tore man away from God. For the subtlest spiritual essence of pride, properly distinguishable only in the spiritual effort of discernment of spirits, lies precisely in the fact that, as opposed to all other causes ascribed to the fall, it alone is not from below but from above. It is not from imperfection, but from completion, not from deficiency, but from an overabundance of gifts, and not from weakness, but from power. In other words, it comes not from some unexplainable evil of an unknown origin, but from the enticement and temptation of the divine, very good, of creation and man. Pride is opposed to thanksgiving precisely as unthanksgiving because it arose from the same causes as thanksgiving. It is another, opposite answer to the same gift. It is temptation by the same gift. We know that, according to the testimony of all who follow the path of struggle with sin, temptation is not yet sin. Christ himself was tempted, and precisely by the gifts he possessed, power, authority, miracle working. In fact, every gift of God to man, his divine image and perfection itself, is a temptation, and above all, the gift to man of his I, the miracle of his absolutely unique, eternal, unrepeatable, and indivisible personality, which renders each man like a king of creation. 
Temptation is inherent to the personality because out of all creation only man is called by God to love himself. In other words, to be conscious of his divine gift and the miracle of his I. It is actually only through this love of himself that man comprehends God as the life of his life, as the absolutely desired thou in which he finds himself, his fullness, his happiness, his human I, created in the image and likeness of God, who is love. The human personality is love for oneself, and thus love for God, love for God, and thus love for oneself. The apprehension of oneself as a bearer of the divine gift of knowledge and ascent into the fullness of life. And here it is innate to convert this love for himself that is implicit in man into love of oneself, into self-love, which constitutes the essence of pride. No, man is not enticed by evil, but by himself, by his own divine image, by the divine miracle of his eye. He heard the serpent's whisper, You will be like gods, not from outside, but from within, in the blessed fullness of paradise, and wanted to have life in himself and for himself. He wanted all of God's gifts as his own and for himself. I looked upon the beauty of the garden, and my mind was deceived. Canon of St. Andrew of Crete, Ode 2, 1. The fall of man occurred here, at these heights and from these heights. You will be like gods. But these words were in fact stolen from God. God created us and called us into his wonderful light so that we would become like gods, and have abundant light. What then transformed these words into a lie, into the beginning of the fall, into the source of sin, decay, and death? The answer to this question is given precisely by the Eucharist, by the thanksgiving that returns us to the throne of the kingdom, grants us to see the face of God and his creation, heaven and earth, the fulfillment of his glory. The Eucharist answers not with definitions, with words about words, but with its own light and power. For thanksgiving is the power that transforms desire and satisfaction, love and possession, into life that fulfills everything in the world, given to us by God, into knowledge of God and communion with Him. And thus only thanksgiving convicts, in other words, exposes Sin as the falling away of love from thanksgiving, as unthankfulness. Created in the image and likeness of God, who is love, man cannot cease to be love. Even in unthankfulness, he nevertheless remains that same love. He admires all the same gifts. But it is a love that has ceased to be thanksgiving. In other words, the knowledge of the gift of life and everything in life as not only God's, from God, but as the revelation of God's love to man, as a call to man to transform all gifts and life itself into partaking of the divine life, into knowledge of God. Life in oneself. But only the Father has life in himself, John 5.26. Only God is life, and therefore the life of any life. The horror and finality of the fall lies in this. Wanting life in himself and for himself, man fell away from life. Through sin, death entered the world, Romans 5.12, and the world itself became darkness and the shadow of death. Not transformed by thanksgiving into the food of immortality, into communion into life, it became communion unto death and love for the world. Not transformed by thanksgiving into knowledge of God, it became a dim and self-devouring lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. Man is a passion, but a useless passion. In saying this, Jean-Paul Sartre did not, of course, know what happened in the falling away of man in that original sin in which ceasing to be a sacrament of thanksgiving, the world died and life became dying. 9. We know that all of this, the terrible lawlessness and untruth of sin, the bottomless sorrow and death-dealing power of our fall from God, the power of evil, had once reigned in the world each time that, 
from the heavenly heights to which Christ's thanksgiving has raised us, these two expressions came forth. When we had fallen away, thou didst raise us up again. But we know it because we have been restored, because we have access to the Father and have been made partakers of the kingdom which is to come. And thou didst not cease to do all things until thou hadst brought us up to heaven and hadst endowed us with thy kingdom which is to come. In Christ, human nature is lifted up to heaven, sanctified, deified. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Paradise was on earth, but we have ascended to heaven, and even now our life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 3. The revelation of this last and highest gift, its endowment, is precisely the church, and this endowment is accomplished in the sacrament of thanksgiving, in which the church fulfills herself as heaven on earth. This fulfillment is also witnessed, too, by the sanctus, that angelic praise, holy, 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 which in almost every Eucharistic text that has come down to us concludes the profatio, and through which, as we shall later see, the sacrament of thanksgiving introduces us into the sacrament of remembrance. For all these things we give thanks to Thee, and to Thine only begotten Son, and to Thy Holy Spirit, for all things of which we know and of which we know not, whether manifest or unseen, and we thank Thee for this liturgy which Thou hast deigned to accept out of our hands, though there stand by Thee thousands of archangels and hosts of angels, the cherubim and seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, who soar aloft, borne on their pinions, singing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying, Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. To what do these ancient angelic praises witness if not to heaven, and which we are seeing and hearing, for we ourselves are lifted up to it? What are these words of the royal greeting if not an icon, the gift, vision, revelation of the kingdom of glory, if not meeting with God, fulfilled through thanksgiving at his table in his kingdom?